Now we have a reading from the scriptures from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. And you're welcome to follow along or just listen to this passage. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. You can turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 34. This morning we will be considering the words of Elihu, the young man who uh, apparently was present for the interactions between Job's friends and Job. And when those two parties are done speaking... Elihu speaks up. And Elihu speaks to both Job and his friends. If you recall from two weeks ago, Job's friends understood the world in uh, what Christopher Ashe calls the system do good, get blessing. Sin, receive punishment. And that's the only way they understand the world. And Elihu speaks differently. Romans 8 speaks differently. It calls that thinking the way of the flesh. But the Apostle Paul there and Elihu here speak to something different. 
I'll read chapter 34. We're going to be looking at chapters 31 to 37, and so we'll kind of do a bit of a scan of those and look at some, some ideas presented in those, um, and then we will uh, think carefully about the sovereignty of God, because I think that's primarily what Elihu is attempting to portray. So I'll read Job 34, and then we'll proceed. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, and I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men? For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn Him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand." For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him and he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign that he should not ensnare the people. 
For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise men who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu makes a number of arguments specifically in that text. And and throughout all of his his speeches, he is primarily arguing for God. He's primarily representing God to Job and his friends as someone they've misunderstood. And so beginning in uh, chapter 31, excuse me, chapter 32, let's review some of the things that he says throughout these six chapters. First of all, he's angry at Job. And he's angry at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. Job considered himself somewhat equal with God. You see, we don't critique. We critique a, a fellow man. We, we rarely critique with vigor someone who is better than us and who we know is better than us. But Job saw himself as equal with God and he wanted God to justify his actions to Job. And so Elihu is pointing that out. But he's also angry at Job's friends because while they found no answer, they searched to find out why Job was sinful and they found no answer, but yet they still said, he's got to be sinful. And so he's angry at Job because Job seeks to justify himself and he's angry at Job's friends because they assumed Job to be sinful. In chapter 33, verses 4 to 6, we see Elihu understanding himself. He says, I too am human. Again, this phrase that that caught me in the book. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. I am human just like you. I don't come with any special wisdom as a man but that which God has revealed to me. In verses 8 to 18, Elihu answers Job's charge of God being against you. And he doesn't try to say, no, no, God is for you. He doesn't try to make the case that that Job is incorrect in saying that God is against him. He simply says, God is above you. 
how can you say with conviction that he is against you? If he is above you, how can you say that God is against you? And then in chapter 33, verses 19 to 33, he makes the case that God quite well may be using this time of suffering to rescue Job from hell. It's a reality of suffering that we're not always comfortable with. In chapter 34, which we read, Elihu defends God against Job's claim that I am in the right and God has taken my rights away. And that's the thing we hear Job contend. God is, God is behaving badly towards me. I've done right and he's rewarding me with suffering. And so in chapter 34, Elihu defends God and he says in, in verses 12, and 15, 12 to 15, God cannot do evil. Can the one who created righteousness be accused of being unrighteous? And in verses 21 to 30, God sees and knows everything. Who are you of limited view to judge his actions? And in 37, he says to Job, your claim that God is unjust adds rebellion to your sin. In chapter 35, Elihu speaks on God's behalf that God knows each man truly and fully, not in part like man knows man. And he says that God is above us in knowledge. How can a man say, you have done wrong? And then in chapter 36, Elihu shows the majesty of God. In verses 3 through 13, we see God controlling nature, whether for correction. So God can use the force of nature to correct an evil and sinful man. Or for his land, God can control nature to make it flourish because it is his land. Or for love, God can bless and love a man through control of the world. He causes it to happen. In chapter 36, verse 14 to 20, there's uh, an interesting uh, back and forth or an interesting phrase that he uses there to speak to Job. And basically he says, you who get hot in the sun and can't do anything about it, what do you have to say to the God who created the sun who you can't escape from its heat? Who are you in the scope of the world? And his final call to Job and his friends is to Fear God. As I uh, read through and pondered on these chapters, the primary message that hit me loud and clear is the sovereignty and autonomy of God. 
God does not answer to us. God does not consult us. And if, if I had to distill down uh, my thinking uh, from these chapters, is, is there's three realities that come from the sovereignty of God that we see expressed here. There's more than three, but we'll, we'll think about three specifically this morning. And the first is that suffering is suffering that is perceived as evil by us is a tool in the hand of God for the advancement of his good and gracious will. In chapter 33 verses 29 to 30, behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. And so suffering, while unpleasant, while painful, while sometimes to the depths that it causes to despair of life itself, God uses to rescue us. God uses to bring back our soul from the pit. but not only to rescue, but he says that he may be lighted with the light of life. God uses suffering to ignite the light of life. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, both Job and his friends focused on what was happening right here, right now. And they had their concrete perspective firmly anchored in the immediate. They did not consider the eternal nature in which God interacts with man. And that God may be using this time of suffering to ignite the light of life. To the friends, the suffering of Job merely spoke to Job's sinfulness. They, they did not consider that God may be doing something more than merely meeting out blind judgment. To Job, the nature of his suffering in the moment caused him to doubt and question the right justice of God. He did not consider that God may have wanted something more joyous, more bright, that God wanted to bring him more flourishing. It, and as we consider this, we, we don't think of pain this way, that God is not just going to rescue us, but that he's going to bring us more joy in it. I read the story of a Dr. Tim Henshaw. 
And he begins the story by saying, so much pain. I was at what should have been the prime of life. Medical school finished, internship and residency done, two kids and a wonderful wife at home, but there was so much pain. And as he tells his story of of finally making it, finally getting a paycheck that mattered, and now all of that getting robbed by a disease that he inherited from his father that started with sore feet and took away his mobility and he was left with unbearable pain and wheelchair bound. And then he speaks of his daughter coming in when she was seven and saying, Daddy, my feet hurt. And he knew what that meant. And as he described his struggle, he ended by saying, at least I know there is a way. Total desolation is not our fate. Desperation and hopelessness are the feelings of the world that need not define us. There is love now, and most unexpectedly, there is joy. Joy that is not earthly. You see, it took the struggle, it took the pain to bring about that joy. For the Apostle Paul, this was true as well. In 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." It's just just backwards for the way we consider the world. That joy comes from pain. That strength comes from weakness. But it is the way of God. Would you rather have the perfection of human ideas and standards or would you rather that Christ may rest on you and bring about joy, true joy. And so first of all, the sovereignty of God says that suffering could be about bringing something greater and more joyful. Secondly, Elihu portrays the sovereignty of God as God being far above us. In Job 35, he says, Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? If your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Or if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Now, I think if we're honest, that kind of shakes us up a little bit. Elijah is saying that you can sin, 
but you're not blemishing God. You're not doing anything against God. You can be the most righteous man on the earth, but you're not contributing anything to God's righteousness. God's holiness is not bound up in your ability to be right or wrong. He's above us. Our lives don't change him. He doesn't need us to bring about something good in himself. We are not on a team with God. You hear this with sports teams all the time. It was a team win. Everybody did their job. This guy did his job, this guy didn't. Because of the team, we, we won. We're not in the team with God. We are fully dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us. And Elihu then considers the world and the way the world is created to bring this to bear upon us. And he says, can, can, you, can you go up in the clouds? Can you go where God is? Can you control things like God can? And if we consider the world of science, think carefully, uh, think a little bit about the air we breathe. We don't think about that, and it happens however many hundreds of times a day. But we don't think that the percentages of the gases in the air we breathe is perfect for our flourishing, perfect to very minuscule percentages. Now, uh, let's ask Elon Musk to adjust those percentages and change humanity, right? There's nothing humanity could do to adjust the percentages of gas. We might could have a localized effect, but in the course of the whole world, we're powerless. We're minuscule. They're fixed by God's design, and he sustains them to the exact percentages that make organic life possible. From a spiritual perspective, we know our inability to be perfect. We know our sinfulness. We know our brokenness. And we recognize that unless God has worked in the same way that he works to fix the percentages of gases on our behalf, that we are lost. He's above us. God does not need us, but we need him. We are not equals. Job 36, 26 says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. And so the first example is the example of nature. The second is the example of eternity. God is eternal. The number of his years is unsearchable. We are earthly and finite. It's kind of interesting that if someone in our world reaches the age of 100, everyone wants to know what the secret is. What did you eat? What did you drink? Was it a Coke or maybe a Dr. Pepper? Um, it's interesting that none of these people say kale. 
It's, it's always things that are bad for you that made them live this long, right? This grasping for longevity is a grasping for eternity, an eternity that isn't us. It's not ours. We're finite. We're limited by time. God is above us. He is eternal. He created time. The reality is that hundred years that we long for is but a hair in the eternity of time. And so what is our right perspective towards God? And Elihu gives us that in Job 33. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Elihu has a right understanding of his position before God. He understands that God made him. He understands that the breath of the Almighty gives him life. And he chides Job for even thinking that he has the right to question God. Thirdly then, God is holy righteous. W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. God is completely and totally righteous. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so, Job, excuse me, Elihu defends God against Job's claim of God's unrighteousness towards him and says, God is abundant in righteousness and he will not violate it. Righteousness as we know it flows from the hand of God. And he who defines what perfect righteousness is cannot be considered unrighteous. Job 34.23, For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. We, finite, broken humanity, do not judge whether God is righteous or not. Humanity goes to God to find righteousness, not the other way around. In the same way, the parent does not seek the wisdom of of the child, nor does the judge consult the opinions of the prisoner. God is above us, and he is holy and completely righteous. So now we have these truths. God is righteous, God is above us, and God can take what we see as suffering and turn it into our good. What about these in our everyday lives? At a fundamental level, when we suffer, when things don't go as we intend, whether that's uh, the sudden death of a mother whether that's a struggle with a sickness that you didn't see coming, whether it's relationships that bring 
pain and brokenness instead of flourishing. Do we question God? Do we say, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Is that our primary posture? I think to question is okay, but we cannot remain there. We have to acknowledge that God is above us and what may be painful, what may be broken, what may be uncomfortable could well be God working out His righteousness in our lives, not only rescuing us, but giving us the light of life. Secondly, do you assume your stature? You see, we're all born in the world with the idol of me. We're all born to think that I'm the most important, that I'm the one who's right, and that everyone should just cater to me. Elihu recognized again that he was merely a piece of clay and that his place before God was under God. And thirdly, do you assume your own righteousness? This is one we're probably all very comfortable with doing. Uh, Merely bring up an argument with someone and, and see what you're fighting for. I'm right. I'm always right. How dare you question my rightness? I'm not wrong, you just misunderstood. Or you're wrong. That's generally the way we argue. Because we assume our own righteousness and we assume our own view of what righteousness is and we assume our own perspectives as the only ones. Elihu asks us to consider that righteousness comes from God. It does not come from ourselves. Again, as, as we've often done, the answer to these questions are Jesus. Do you question God's goodness on your behalf? There's Jesus. Do you assume much of yourself? There's Jesus who came to allow us to see ourselves and to bring about true righteousness. And so this morning, as we consider these things, may our response be one that turns to Christ again, that seeks his forgiveness, that seeks the righteousness only he can provide. Let's have a song.